Hello and welcome to the Busyness Podcast. My name is Emily Austin. I'm the founder and CEO of a London-based PR agency called Emerge. I'm passionate about launching and scaling small businesses and have been fortunate enough in my 13-year career to work with some of the most exciting, category-defining brands in the world. I started my business when I was 22 years old, fresh out of university. Since that time, the world has got louder. Our expectations have become greater and our lives have become busier. Fobbing friends off with the stock answer we've all become accustomed to, I'm so busy, is an attempt to compel, conflate and convince. But when did being too busy become a mark of status? Why is the goal to never have any free time? And just what the fuck is everyone doing? Are we setting unrealistic expectations for future entrepreneurs and business owners by encouraging them that a maniacal approach to diarising is the standard? This podcast aims to give you a realistic, detailed insight into the honest stories, the failures, the triumphs, the intricacies, the mistakes, the comebacks, the fuck-ups from those set to make their mark, the leaders, movers and shakers, trailblazers and game changers. We cover imposter syndrome, hiring and firing, call-out culture, anxiety, global growth, daily routines and knowing when to quit, choosing the best in the busyness to help you cut through the noise and optimise your success. This week, I catch up with Jack Tang, co-founder of Urban, a wellness app which has serviced over 1 million customers with a range of treatments including massage, fitness and facials. We chatted about how to work productively with a co-founder, how entrepreneurship was always a viable career path for Jack, how he learned from winging it, how he wants to represent progression in the industry and be seen as the good guys of the gig economy. And we also chatted about how Urban has grown to become the category leader. I really hope you enjoy this one. It was fascinating sitting down with Jack. So yeah, if we kick off by you just telling me a bit more about what you were doing before Urban and how the idea came about. Yeah, so before Urban, um, I was working on another startup, which I founded whilst at university. Um, that company was the studentjob.com and founded it in 2010-2011. And the idea was really simple. It, it was to help students to find part-time jobs um, whilst you know whilst you know, it, you know whilst studying university, um, but also giving them the opportunity to kind of find their graduate sort of pathways as well. Um, so that was really cool um started it at university my first in my first year um and that sort of absorbed most of my time um in the first year and second year and um and we were you know we were really really lucky in the way that we were able to you know get through to a lot of students in a very viral way um and then so within 18 months we became uk's largest job board for students um to find part-time gigs um and yeah, and and basically, I took the leap, um, you know, and left university on a sabbatical in my second year, and just fully focused on this business. Um, and you know, sort of one after one thing after another, we then you know started talk to talk to um, 
a well-established UK-based job board and we decided to work together and and yeah and then we you know our business integrated into their business um we worked for them for so for a year um and then Giles my co-founder and I at the time um decided to to start something new and and that was the the beginnings of urban and so when you when you started urban like were there lots of lessons from your previous business that you took forward was it quicker and easier to do as a result of having run a business previously yeah I think you know I chose this sort of entrepreneurship career pathway because like you're learning new things every single day and you you know our first business was you know was really kind of winging it and and we learned a lot of things along the way by just like I guess um making mistakes and I think the the biggest the biggest lessons that we kind of took took on board from our last business to urban was you know the importance around just not just building features or building you know things for the sake of it or we think it's useful to customers but really having conviction and validation so in terms of like our way of thinking around building an urban product has been very hinged around like you know customer research and speaking to a lot of people and really validating um the problem and 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 the pain points that we're trying to solve before we then start writing lines of code and that was like the the biggest lesson that we learned from the student job um and so when we first started urban we didn't write any lines of code but we, we were processing bookings and appointments through the platform in a relatively manual way just to validate like you know, the, the pain points and the problems that we can solve and, and ultimately like how can technology enhance the experience or make things more efficient. And when you, from a practical perspective, the steps that you took, were you fully out of the other business or was this something, was Urban something you sort of started like on a Saturday and then there was a kind of critical point where you made the jump or were you ever running two businesses at the same time or what was that process like? So when we were working for effectively our acquirers you know, in, you know, off the back of the student job, we were very transparent with them and said, look, you know, we're going to be thinking about starting another business at some point. And so we want to start developing and testing different ideas. So we were working on a number of different ideas at the time and um, Urban was one of them. Um, and so, yeah, we were sort of, I guess, like using you know you know some of our personal time to really uh progress that business forward and get to the initial milestone just to validate product market fit so so yeah we spent our you know evenings weekends um any time that we had really to work on that and and then the i guess the pivotal point for us was when we were able to you know truly have conviction around yes we have solved the problems and we have not solved the problems, but I guess that we have validation on the thesis that we had. Um, and then we raised our first pre-seed round, which is a tiny, like 200,000 pound check. And then that was the thing that, you know, we, that was the point in which that we just thought, okay, let's, let's make that transition to really double down and focus fully on this project. 
because you know at the time that urban was a great idea did were you testing and learning as you went or were you like this is this is it this is the one no I, I think I think you're you know when we first started the business you know the the thesis for us was was very simple we're trying to solve two problems so you know as a consumer and I guess like me personally from my own personal experience um trying to book well-being services is something that is quite challenging at the time because the market, the industry itself is super fragmented. Um, to find a high quality provider is often a bit of a test and learn. And then you find someone, you you, you know, you hold really, really tight to that professional and you, know, you keep wanting to book that person. Um, so that was the consumer problem that we wanted to fix. And having spoken to a lot of practitioners, self-employed practitioners, and, and I think, you know, Giles and I, we did like probably nearly a hundred coffees um, with different practitioners. And we just found them on like, you know, different, you know, classified ads, you know, directory listing places. And the common theme that we found was that there weren't any technological solutions that helped them to effectively become an entrepreneur in a way that is easy and low barrier. And so their, their best alternative was to work for a brick and mortar, work for a, someone else and um, with an outlet and being self-employed is still work in the brick and mortar, but then take home like a really tiny share of the economics, like 20%. And so when I lean into this tension point, what I found was that it just felt that they were being exploited. They didn't really have the empowerment to truly work for themselves. And there weren't really a solution for them. You know, they could advertise themselves. There's a lot of costs up front, a lot of risk. And most of these practitioners are not very into, I guess, like marketing or the business side of the of their operations. And so really there was a void there to create, you know, business partnership at scale. Mm-hmm. Um so we brought those two worlds together. You know, we you know, we saw that actually there's a tech gap here. There's a there's a gap here that we can solve through technology and and bring those two marketplaces together and closer through a much more seamless experience that ultimately solves a really really poor consumer consumer experience right um so yeah i think that was the thesis and you know we don't we didn't know like it's going to work like we we had to kind of prove out the different points and and ultimately you know what sort of validated that we had product market fit was customers coming back and we are genuinely providing a better alternative for the professionals to work and it providing the flexibility in the, in the and greater source of income. And so when, when we hear entrepreneurs talk about their businesses, often we hear that it was um, a conversion of something that someone was really, really passionate about into, into a business model. Arguably you weren't necessarily passionate about the specifics of the practitioner's expertise your passion and interest really was more about this idea of correcting what you saw as an exploitative system and encouraging people that they would be able and capable to reach a better financial structure and and explore their own entrepreneurialism was that the bit that you wanted to impact the most and this was sort of a vehicle to do that in a space that needed to be updated yeah, no, absolutely. Like as an entrepreneur, my my personal 
I guess, interest is, you know, solving really poor consumer experiences. That's like one one thing that I like doing. And, and this is why like, in my, my experience so far has been in the consumer tech sector. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, you know, I like to use technology to do good, right? And so what we what we do for the professionals working within the industry is that we're providing them empowerment. We're giving them technology that's available, you know, on their smartphones that effectively give them a level footing to to people who may have a bit more capital or resources to open their own salon or whatever it might be. But effectively, what we've done is that we've enabled anyone, any practitioners to be able to, to launch their own virtual salon in a way um, on our platform, in a way kind of like Etsy, um, but on the urban platform. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really, really powerful because when you speak with these professionals, they care a lot about flexibility, largely because the nature of, when you look at the industry, um, 80% of industry are female professionals. And, you know, I think, you know, flexibility is a huge point because we, we work with a lot of practitioners that, that need, um, you know, time to go to care for, you know, a child or, or someone else or um, they're, they're studying for something. Um, mm. and, and so this is a big theme. Um, and I think, you know, what, what we've been able to unlock is, is, is really, really powerful. Um, and that, that effectively goes back to the point of like, how, you know, we're building to, using technology to do good. You started the business in 2014. What was the landscape like for at-home treatments? And sort of, uh, you know, obviously we're comfortable with certain people coming into our homes. The idea of sort of nannies, housekeepers, cleaners has been something that isn't necessarily new. But were in 2014 were people having someone around the house to have a massage was that quite a new concept for people to shift from the sort of trusted salon to the in-home idea I think um so in 2014 um so in-home massage or in-home services as a whole um was somewhat reserved for the the wealthy or the rich and you know and and people you kind of looked at it as a as a luxury um i think that was one one key thing that we we observed um and um yeah i think you know people are still not very used to having strangers come into their home and and still today you know people there is always a segment of people that don't feel entirely comfortable and that's okay um, but I think the world is changing, um, you know, particularly, you know, the sharing economy has, has exploded, right. Um, since we started, um, Airbnb, Uber, um, and so on. And yeah, I think, I think what we've been able to do is to kind of like bring about, you know, far greater levels of efficiency within the, within the, within the industry by connecting really high quality professionals uh, with consumers in their neighborhoods and keeping them really busy. So there's not much downtime in between appointments. And by doing that, we are able to not only pass on a lot more share of the economics back to the professionals, but also making it 
much more accessible for consumers. So in a way, like we've democratized the whole notion of having a, a massage or a, or a beautician or a personal trainer or a physio, whatever it might be, to come to you in the comfort of your home. Um, so I think the landscape has, has shifted a lot. And but yeah, when we first started, it was a very alien concept. Um, and, and I guess like people who used to, I guess like in a way like, you know uber's sort of initial sort of message was about like you know that everyone's chauffeur or something you know um and and the idea of like having someone to rock up within minutes to to kind of take you to another another place and i think that the whole idea is, is is now very much democratized and in a very similar similar trajectory we want to do the same um within the wellness space yeah and i'm glad you mentioned uber actually because you you said a minute ago about the idea that a lot of these practitioners were being cut out of the, you know, you'd pay 80 quid for a massage and they were actually probably only seeing 20% of that money and you wanted to reset that a bit. The the gig economy and the sharing economy are quite a confusing concept and have been featured particularly in media in a really negative way. The most obvious one being Uber and employee rights, which has rumbled on and been kind of um, quite interesting for the media you guys essentially are talking about being on the the good guys side of the gig economy. Can you explain a little bit more about what the gig economy actually is in terms of the type of work and then how you guys are, are positively impacting that? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, the gig economy is, is, is well known now. Um, it's, you know, obviously it's the type of work that, um, that is, that's completely different to obviously working somewhere full time as an employee, you know, that's the traditional pathway. The gig economy is becoming more and more popular because people want flexibility. People want the freedom to choose who they want to work with, when they want to work, where they want to work. And that's the, I guess the evolution that we're, you know, that we're seeing around the world and especially with the pandemic as well, that's accelerated gig work as a whole. Um, you know, gig work within, I guess, the well wellness space, wellness services space is nothing new because, you know, even before Urban um, or any other similar platforms out there, um, a beautician or a massage therapist or even a physio doctor, whatever, they tend to work for different clinics, work for different you know, private clients. They'll have maybe they're part of a network of some sorts and, and, and they, they, they do spend their time the working week in different locations, you know, working, you know, with different um, networks and providers. Um, and so that, that whole idea is nothing new. Um, and, you know, people value you know, the ability to, to, to be flexible, to have the change of scenery and, uh, and so on. Um, and I think, yeah, gig. The, the word gig has had bad connotation because how, I guess, like some, I guess it's been also been sort of um, uh, the, the narrative of gig has been sort of shaped by the media as well. I think there are certain practices that perhaps gig economy platforms have, you know, have had maybe, you know, executed in a way that's um, been negatively perceived. But I think there is a really, really positive side of gig economy, particularly um, how we think about it is, you know, but firstly, 
you know, the status quo, the alternative for well-being professionals before urban, you know, was working in a brick and mortar or, you know, and, and for many, many hours, back-to-back appointments, right? Um, mm. so, so the type of work is very repetitive. It's, um, it's very intensive in, as well. Inflexible, I guess. Inflexible. And, yeah, and I think, you know, it's and it's not it's not very very well paid either so we're trying to change that um you know by way of you know introducing the whole idea of gig but really in a positive light and and yeah and, and um you know through what i mentioned earlier be able to pass on a significant share of the academics back to people so really people are getting fairly rewarded for their work and you know and their skills um equally the flexibility again as I say is super important for people um did it ever worry you early on the idea of from a control perspective that obviously people booking a one-off service and I know that you now have a whole breadth of different different services um on the product did it ever worry you about the idea that if it was if the service was bad how that could impact the business especially at scale or is there just such a you know the vetting process of the practitioners was just had to be so good to to avoid that or is it kind of inevitable that some people might have an experience certainly in the early days that that you're you want to improve yeah so so going back to the re, you know, the the whole f- fragmented marketplace point, you know, for for us, like we created and invested a lot in our urban brand because we wanted to create a standing within the industry that this is the industry standard or a place that you go to find great practitioners in your local area, and and there are you know good eggs and bad eggs in the industry, and so you know what we try to do is to make sure you know, you know, in, in, and do everything that we can to make sure that we're, we're, we, we're partnering with the, the good eggs of the industry, the best of the best in the industry. And so it, you know, and so as a consumer, you don't have to worry about, Oh, who's good. Who's not. You, just, you really trust the urban hallmark and say, okay, everything, everyone I find on the platform will be, will be good and have that been vetted and gone through, you know, rigorous processes to, to make sure they're qualified, they're insured, you know, that, you know, we would do background checks and everything else. Um, and, and equally, by creating this as an ecosystem, you then attract other great people to to kind of be part of the journey. The reputation within wellness is really important and anything services related is super important, right? It's like, if you want to, I don't know, buy, um, you, know, or, you know, plumbing services or you want to buy accountancy services or PR services, right? Reputation is everything. And... And, that, and that's no different for, you know, wellness services as a whole. So, um, so yes, like, you know, um, you know, every single practitioner we, we partner with have their own individual profile, their, their own shop front in the way. Um, but we, they're part of our network and they're part of our ecosystem and community and, and they're part, and, and, and they're part of it because, you know, you know, we believe that they have the right credentials. They have the right, um, you know, sort of, um, professionalism and, and everything else and insurance and everything to be part of that part of that sort of you know um, community and, and to be honest like you know we've we've delivered now over a million appointments and um 
and you know our NPS and ratings have always been very very good as a platform and and equally when you look at the professionals reviews and ratings it's always been pretty positive you talk about reputation I'm interested in you know you started in 2014 which was right at the beginning really of a a kind of social media explosion so you know TikTok etc hadn't quite appeared but certainly Instagram was in the relative early days and with a sort of 2012 um, launch what were the channels that um, you leaned into from a marketing perspective was because you know as you say word of mouth marketing really is really substantial in terms of referrals on on the platform was there um was it important to you to be relevant from a social media perspective or were there sort of a lot of offline real experiences yeah it's an interesting one in terms of like how how we have marketed ourselves it's like yeah we've taken an omni-channel approach so you you know we, we invest heavily on 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 google for example um there's a lot of natural search intent for for you know uh, well-being services as a whole and so we've been able to introduce our concepts um you know through through that channel um we've done a lot of awareness campaigns on social so you know whether it's like paid advertising on facebook or instagram and um, snapchat etc that's been a really good channel to raise awareness but yeah, we've, I mean, we've done a lot of different things like referral programs and bloggers, et cetera. But I think for us, because it's such a positive experience, like when you book a treatment, such a positive thing, uh, an experience that you look forward to. And so naturally people talk about it. It's a, it's a thing that it's very talkable. And, um, and so, yeah, we, you know, we have a referral program. It's a very generous referral program, um, where customers refer each other and, and ultimately, the success of that program it really hinges on the overall experience that customers you know and users um get out of using urban um and so we really focus on just delivering a really awesome experience you know from the mm-hmm. from the first time you, you click on our ad or even whatever it is you you find us however you find us um the booking experience you know keeping you informed you know uh you know, whether it's like the experience you have with the treatment of the th- for therapist that you've booked um, and then the follow-ups, making sure that end-to-end experience is really good and create, you know, these sort of wow moments that you can talk about with your friends, whether it's like over a casual conversation, over, over dinner, whatever it might be. So, so naturally then, like when you look at our, you know, our sort of new users, like, you know, a third of them come from like paid performance channels and then, you know a good third come from referral marketing and then another third is just like you know the the media and the goodwill that we've built over the years um so yeah i really believe that for us to drive genuine growth um you know we really need to deliver an amazing experience end-to-end so the opportunity with urban you know we talked about sort of changing the functionality of the way that um practitioners and therapists actually get uh, paid and and treated but essentially what we're also talking about is a brand first business so the brand is now much bigger than it was it's a multi-million pound company you're growing 
how difficult has it been to retain the culture that you had right at the beginning in a business that's scaling, which, you know, in theory has, um, I get, you know, it's a different staff model in, in a sense. I, I, I don't know what you refer to the practitioners as, but presumably not staff, but you've got such a broad number of people using the product. You've got a broad number of people who are um, working with it and then your own internal team. How do you manage ensuring that there's that cultural piece and that the reasons you started it are sort of felt throughout the business, even as you're getting bigger and bigger as a company. Yeah. So, so I'll, I'll split this two, this question into two parts. So the first part being, you know, the urban, you know, employees, um, you know, that works on, you know, the products and so on. So, you know, we've, we've scaled the business, um, you know, to, to quite a number of people now. Um, and, it, it definitely, as, you, as you're growing a business, there there are certain challenges around main, maintaining the culture of the business. But I think fundamentally, and you know, but I think fundamentally, it it really sort of starts with the founders, right? It's the the behaviors and the the um uh, the you know whatever sort of um, cultural rituals that we might have in the business um, that really drives the the sense of belonging for every individual employee that, that we have in the business. Um, and so, you know, I think in the beginning when we were, you know, less than 10, it's really easy to maintain that, especially if you have, if you're working with every, everyone, you know, everyone's name and you know, everyone on a personal level, it's quite easy to maintain that culture. But as we've scaled the business, um, definitely it's becoming more and more challenging. And particularly with COVID as well, I think, you know, we've accumulated a lot of cultural debt over the last 12 months, not being able to forge those bonds that you would do in a face-to-face context. But yeah, I think, you know, we, you know, we, we, we recently did an exercise just to really crystallize some of our values within our business and also the expected behaviors behind those values. And, and what we've done is that we've crystallized that, which really embodied, it was really something that we, we embodied, um, and we've implemented that framework across how we think about hiring. So as part of our recruitment process, you know, we, we're very clear on the values and the expected behaviors. And then also we tailor our interview and questions around some of those, some of those topics. Um, and equally, you know, whilst you're in the business, we, we have various different touch points that, to reinforce that. We have various different rituals to reinforce those points as well. Um, so I think that that's worked pretty well for us and, and, um, you know, I think we, you know, definitely like pre COVID has been, um, I think definitely, uh, you know, one of the strengths of, of our, of our business. Um, but with COVID, I think, um, it's been more difficult and more challenging, especially, you know, in the beginning where we've taken a lot of offline relations online, which is fine. It's just kind of, you know, you've already forged those bonds, you know, the people you've seen their vulnerability, you see that they're human. They're not just a boss or whatever it might be. Bring that online is okay. But the, the challenge is that over time, that bond does diminish and you need to find ways in which to reinforce that. But also on top of that, the other challenge is that, you know, we've hired people throughout COVID and we've onboarded them virtually and remotely you know from a remote um 
uh, approach. And and um, it's it's very difficult to build online to online, I guess bonds. And and so we're working on um, some ideas around how we can solve that and, and pay down the cultural debt in the coming months. Moving on to your second question around, I guess, the, the practitioners that we work with. So firstly, they are all um, self-employed partners that we work with. So what does that mean? Ultimately, you know, before working with Urban, they they would have, you know, um, been self-employed, um, possibly coming uh, working for a salon or have private clients or, uh, or other platforms. Um, and again, I think when we think about the culture within our community, um i guess like you know we again it starts within so it starts with the you know the the community team that we have at urban and how that interaction um the relationship you know between between the the parties and and um you know we we do various different things to really kind of strengthen the partnership um we host a bunch of webinars to really um you know kind of humanize the urban you know, brand and Urban HQ that we are, you know, people here and here we're here to support you as entrepreneurs. Um, and and yeah, we, we did a bunch of really fun stuff before COVID. We've had like, you know, um, award ceremonies and we've, you know, enabled um, different, I guess, like more prominent partners to host meetups. Like, um, um, you know, I think, that, I think before COVID there was like some, picnics in the park and while therapists were waiting for the next appointment they get together for coffees and and i think really it's the sense of community and belongingness that really glues the 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 whole community together um and that's the thing that we as a business need to keep fueling and, and making sure making sure that that continues yeah i mean you're right i think it's equally difficult for both business owners and um, new members of the team to to onboard remotely. It's it's really challenging, and um, I guess you know you guys have been fortunate enough to have essential services as part of your proposition, and certainly people who experience any sort of pain or require chiropractors, etc. But you know, obviously, a much smaller range of um, services than you probably would have ordinarily liked, certainly in the last year has have you had to um manage what you know the practitioners on the site or on the product sorry on the app are um heavily impacted by the last year do you you talk about kind of cultural debt with your team but is there a sense of do you feel a sense of ownership over that problem for them in terms of the restrictions that they've had um as as one of the sectors that has been really damaged as a result of COVID, yeah, the personal care sector has been has had a really rough time um, over over COVID. Um, you know, initially, uh, um, the industry is completely forgotten, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and and then you know, what, one of the key roles that that we played in in the whole duration of COVID was to really provide a voice for the people that we represented and the livelihoods that we represented. So I spent a lot of my time in the past 12 months lobbying um, with um, parliamentary groups, um, with um, uh, lobbying uh, consultants and 
um, having had many meetings with ministers um, and really to promote the prominence and the existence of uh, this industry, which is, mm. you know, a huge one. Um, and yeah, and you're right, you know, it's it's been really, really tough for the people behind it. And, you know, there's been various articles and and we've had a lot of stories as well within within our community itself. Um, but I think o- over the period, what, you know, what we felt our duty was, was to make sure that we represented the voice and the, and, the, and the concerns and the opinions and the realities behind the impact of the lockdowns and, and how we could work together with the government to minimise those impacts as possible. So one of the big things that we've been fighting for um, was around governmental support. Um, you know, a lot of the practitioners, as I say, like you know, all of the practitioners are self-employed, and and we lobbied heavily around ensuring the self-employment support schemes were income support schemes were sufficient for people to continue to to maintain, you know, a food on the table and you know a roof over their heads. Um, you know, we also really worked closely with associations, ministers to make sure that, you know, that we're able to do two things. One is to provide relief to people that need treatment, ongoing care, uh, which has significantly helped relieve any backlogs of the NHS as well. And there's a lot of you know headlines now coming out of lockdown in terms of the wait times and the, the number of procedures that have been missed because of the lockdown um a lot of our end users and you know are suffering chronic musculoskeletal issues um pain issues and we're able to make sure that 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 was not forgotten and to effectively make that happen and, and, and ensure that continues not only it helps supports the patients but also it also it also supports the, the individual um, practitioners who are qualified to offer these level of services to continue to, to to be able to work and deliver essential services. So, you know, our role was very very clear. You know, um, which was to protect the interests of the practitioners' livelihoods, because ultimately, our philosophy has always been that you know the success of our partners, you know, is urban success. Right? Without without the partners, there is no business. And ultimately, we had to make sure that we service those concerns. We service that information back to the ministers, and then work with them, you know, wherever we can to ensure there was, um, ensure that there was continuity as much as possible. Yeah, you, you know, we're talking now in a week, um, which the world is opening back up again. London's opening back up again. Do you have predictions about the? um the future of the industry do you you know in terms of physical salons versus at home do you think that um you know I'm sh- I know that you've had a, a busy week but are you confident about the demand and desire you know from both sides consumer and practitioner to kind of get get back out there and um and start having having treatments at home again yeah I mean right now we're we're we are frantically trying to uh, bring on board as many partners as possible. Of course, like that, that sort of are, are of, of high quality. Um, 
so that that's the challenge right now. So we, so I think, I think some of the macro dynamics that we're seeing is that, um, you know, because we, because we spend a lot of time at home, you know, people have naturally invested a lot in their own homes. People's mentality around staying at home has, has shifted and we're seeing the tailwinds of the pandemic. Um, and, and, and essentially the easing that we're going through right now is that there is a lot of demand, people wanting services at home and, and effectively, you know, we've seen, you know, the rise of like the grocery on demand grocery, you know, startup that's popping up for the same reasons that people are spending more time at home and they want things in their own home for various reasons, convenience, but also because they feel safer, right? Um, not to be in a in an environment, you know, next to many other people. Um, so I think I think you know ultimately um, that trend will continue. And so, um, you know, I, I don't think it's like an at home versus salon thing. I think it's much more complementary to each other. A lot of our clients, fifty mm percent -hmm. um, of them are are male customers, and they they don't tend to go into a salon. Um, you know, they, they much prefer to have something, something that's, you know, convenient and very functional. Um, whereas, you know, obviously we cater for a market that is much more habitual. So something that you have regularly and it's for convenience, it's much more uh, routine. Whereas obviously going into a salon, going into a spa, it's much more of an experience that you might spend a few hours to half a day or a day uh, in. So I think they're hugely complementary. I think. Um, you know, th there's going to be a continuity, uh, that, you know, in, in the tailwind that we're seeing with the easing and at home, the growth of that, the at home, the convenience market. Um, and yeah, and we're just frantically trying to bring on as many you know, great therapists as possible. Yeah. I want to talk to you about money. So you have raised money for the business. I wanted to know. Uh, whether that was always inevitable from the beginning and how, you know, you talked about an initial £200,000 to sort of get going, but what were the, what was the thought process behind when you raised and did you, were you very clear about the type of money you wanted and where you wanted it from? Or was it, um, was there a lot of shopping around for, for that, for that second investment? Yeah, to be honest, I mean, like, um, you know, raising finance, we, it's something that I've been doing every single year, pretty much for the last six years. And, um, and yeah, you know, we, I've met a lot of investors and, and, you know, I think we've been really fortunate to build the partnerships that we've built with, you know, some of the institutional investors that, that we've brought and brought along the journey with us. Um, yeah, I think, I think each round of funding, we, you know, we are very clear on, the milestones that we wanted to achieve and the, ca the additional capital we wanted to raise and how we're going to deploy that. You know, we've used some of the cash to test new things and test new markets and new opportunities. Um, but I think over the years now, you know, from, from, you know, where we were six, seven years ago to now is that today we're a maturing business with a very, very clear playbook that works, right? When I say it works, it, it, it solves the problems that we intended um, and it, and it, and it's, you know, it, and the unit economics are strong. So, so right now we're, you know, the business is, is much more about, okay, well, how do we effectively 
uh, you know, you know, um, take the machine that we've built today and start gearing up for scale um, in a way that you know is profitable, it's scalable, it's efficient. Um, but yeah, it's taken a lot of you know time and resource and money to get to where we are today. Um, you know, marketplaces are inherently expensive because you have two class of customers to cater for simultaneously. And given that, you know, our marketplace is about, you know, selling services and connecting people, um, you know, that chicken egg problem you have to solve, you know, all the time. And, um, and so that, that, that's, that's a really hard balance to, to, to strike. And I think we we're in a good place. Um, I think we've, proven a very strong market in a home market for example in london you know we've got you know very significant size um you know of of the certainly in the in the massage therapy market we've got a very big you know, share of that 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 wallet um and so really you know i think in terms of from investing point of view i think we've raised enough money to get to at least you know profitable at scale mm-hmm. um and then once we get there then I think we'll we'll explore again, like you know, what further opportunities we want to want to go after. And you have a co-founder, so were you very clear about you know your sort of app development and or sales and or something? And I'm business and finance. Like, have you you know? Del- obviously, you guys worked together before, but. Do you think it's important for co-founders to have very different roles and responsibilities and areas that they impact? Um, well, from my personal experience, I think I think so. Yes, um, you know, my co-founder is. Um, I've worked with him uh, for for quite a few years, and and also went to school together. So we we've built a, a very long relationship, and and he's always been very very technical, and he's always been, you know an absolute, you know, um, uh, genius, I guess, in, in, in my, in my eyes in terms of you know, how he's able to, you know, um, solve pretty complex problems, be able to be, or be, be fluent in, in, you know, in, um, all of the applications that we code in and, 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 you know, across web you know, apps and, um, and, and so on. And, um, and yeah, I think you know it's important to have to have a co-founder. Um, well, firstly, because it, it helps you to to navigate those really tough and lonely moments. Um, to have someone to to be able to be you know completely open book and transparent with, um, you know, share that sort of burden that weight for someone else. But equally, the complementary skills that you both have are super important. It's, for me personally, I don't think it's that valuable to have someone that's exactly the same as you or have the same skill set as you, because then, then it's quite, yeah, it's quite difficult to divide, you know, the roles and responsibilities, especially in the early early stage of the business. You just have to hire for the deficit, right? <laughs> if you if yeah. you're both doing the same job, you're paying twice, and then you've got to hire someone else. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But you know, our, our partnerships work really, really well, and. Yeah, I, I wouldn't change anything. Um, but yeah, that's my own personal experience. And do you guys take time out to enjoy the achievements of the brand? Are you good at reminding one another about, you know, sort of patting each other on the back? Or is it quite sort of stoic and you just breeze through milestones and keep going? 
Yeah, I, I, we we just keep going. To be honest, that you know what what's most satisfying is it's actually meeting the end users of our product. So whether it's a practitioner or a, or a, or a customer, and, and hearing their story and hearing how like we're able to you know improve their life or you know some of the stories that I always remember, and these are the things that I'm most proud of. Is like. You know, we you know we hear from customers like how we're able to completely change their life because they're able to access well-being in a way that is convenient, that's accessible. You know, and and we've made it you know um, something that's also affordable as well for for many people. Um, and you know, we often have heard stories and. And sometimes when I speak, and um, you know, at an event or whatever, I think one really you know memorable moment was that, um, you know, one of the person in the audience, that, you know, it was quite a more question time, but it wasn't a question. But she she was saying that you know it's not a question, but I you know really value you know the, you know the the experience in urban and helped her um, through through sort of a more of a challenging uh, pregnancy period. She was able to access like. You know, highly skilled pregnancy specialists um, you know, throughout her trimesters, and 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 ultimately provided her the support that she needed throughout that journey. Um, and there are many similar stories for like pain relief and and so on. Um, on the flip side of the of the story, you know, we have a lot of partners that, you know, you know, we are providing a, a platform where they can be a true entrepreneur and and be able to kind of build a business to whatever the side of that ambition right and that allows them to then you know push forward with their life you know put down deposits on mortgages in some stories and be able to put you know um a lot of that, you know practitioners be able to build you know new and brilliant you know fantastic lives and you know um with their family and, and so on i think these are the things that that makes us proud of what we do rather than like I guess like Giles and I patting each other on the back and saying, you know, good job. <laughs> yeah. So in many ways, a ma- yeah, a metric of success then is sort of the, the the positive impact actually reaching reaching the end user. Do Do you think that there's um, a slightly skewed perspective now about the reality of what it takes to be successful? We see a lot about overnight success and very young founders and you know huge valuations and things like that. Do you think that there's a you know you talk about working really hard for ages and having to really like grind away and graft and be totally solution oriented do you think that there's an expectation now from young founders that there's sort of uh, an entitlement for quick success Hmm. i'm not (laughs) sure i'm not sure quick success um it's, it's it really it's really subjective right it's ultimately like what is success to you as a founder it's like is it like you want really big valuation or you want uh you, you know to grow your top line numbers you, you want to solve you know big problems like you know what is success to you it's very personal to everyone and um i guess like kind of you know these overnight success stories like raising like a ton of cash for seed round i think there is an element of the story that's not been told, you know, in, in a lot of these, in a lot of these cases, I think, you know, with, um, you know, huge overnight valuations, 
you know, valuation is is a is a, van- is a vanity number um, until you know that paper game becomes realized, right? It's like you know, it's it's great that you have this amazing valuation, but but ultimately you also have the pressure to live up to it. You know, you could you know you could you could you could be a whatever, but you know, billion dollar business or hundred million dollar business, but ultimately you have to live up to it. So that creates a huge amount of pressure on the founders to to be able to do that. Um, you know, ultimately every business that's pre profit, or yeah, it, you know, you're living on some sort of runway. Um, and ultimately, you know, you, you you're gonna have to, um, you know, achieve your milestones and, and continue to raise more money on a on an even higher valuation. And but yeah, I, I don't know. I think I think success is very personal to each founder. And and you know, for me personally, it's really about solving this this problem that I that I first started um, and the thesis that I you know that I had and and making sure that we're able to spread this solution to as many people as we can and making sure that we continue to empower people to to live better lives within the wellness sector yeah it's definitely good advice that it's sort of about holding your line with your own personal aspirations rather than you know producing a version of success that's shaped by by what other people um consider their definitions um we hear a lot about you know, the phrase I'm busy, people respond with it all the time. This seems to be a mark of success behind the idea of being busy. With that in mind, how do you make sure that you keep learning? Are you, is it podcasts? Do you read a lot? Do you, you know, talk to lots of interesting people? What's your process for making sure that you're constantly learning? Yeah, so I, I personally really enjoy speaking with people. So um, I, 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 I make a you know, a good effort in keeping in touch with other founders, um, you know, at all stages, like earlier, earlier than us, later than us, same, same as us, um, just keeping in touch and, and really kind of ask questions, keep the dialogue going. And, and um, I find that most interesting in terms of helping me to learn. And, um, and of course, like, you know, for me personally as well, I'm really interested in, in how other founders you know, approach certain problems. So I think one, 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 one more recent one is like, okay, offices are due to reopen. You know, how do we think about, you know, workspace and workplaces for people? And um, and then you know, I just said to 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 uh, a bunch of founders, hey, like, would you be interested in just like jump on a Zoom like one evening this week? Let's just like talk about it and how everyone's thinking about it. And that was like super fascinating, super valuable, just to kind of talk to others about how they're thinking about certain things. Um, and for me, that's the that's a really good external source of information that I can learn, you know, learn from and and absorb information from. Um, but equally, you know, I, you know, within the business, I'm I'm learning from everyone. You know, I'm learning from others, and um, and I think that's the um, thing I enjoy the most. Like, like keep learning every day. So what's next for Urban? What can we expect to see for the rest of this year? Do you have any interesting sort of partnerships, new services, growth, et cetera? What can you, what can you tell us? I think, you know, for us, our, our, our 2021, you know, strategic priorities is, 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 is making sure that 
you know, with the last 12 months of the pandemic, it's making sure that we continue on a very steady um, you know, trajectory to rebuild the resilience in the business and to get to a point where, you know, we are pretty much profitable, um, you know, entirely. Um, that's a really important milestone for us because, you know, I think, you know, we, we've been in this business for, for seven years, six, seven years, and, and you know, it, we, we've gotten to a point where we are pretty clear on how we can scale our business, the levers in our business. And what I want to prove to ourselves is that we can be profitable at scale. Um, and, you know, in that place, we will be at that position, we'll be also, you know, with a really good levels of cash reserves that we can then start really, you know, start to explore maybe market expansion, look at opening urban in other new markets, um, you know, looking at other other types of opportunity where we can continue to solve the same mission and, and the same same problems, uh, continue our mission um, by guessing, you know, and reaching reaching more people. Really. And, and that's the that's really the the focus for us. But but yeah, the next milestone is getting profitable. And that's something that we, we're really excited by, um, and and still remains to be a, a good good level of challenge for us. Yeah, and I wish you all the best with that. And I'm really grateful for you taking the time today to talk to me. I know you're busy. I know this week has been mad, and I am I'm a customer. I will continue to be a customer. I think it's a fantastic service, and everything that you're doing to impact the people, um, you know on the platform is is really inspiring so thank you for your time and i look forward to watching the business grow the rest of the year awesome thanks for having me